Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Data-Driven Podcast sponsored by Expresso.ai. Expresso.ai is an artificial intelligence and machine learning application lifecycle management platform. It is built on an integrated set of frameworks and accelerators to help data scientists build cognitive solutions quickly and easily. Today we are joined by Ben Empson, the director and the chief technical officer of Topolytics. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me on the, on the show, Michael. Very, very kind. And I will say this too, you sound great. It's so great to be recording with someone who has a killer microphone. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I guess a few years back, I, I created a whole load of online courses and um, my my MacBook um, microphone just, just wouldn't cut it. So no. uh, I, I did invest in a good one. So yeah. Yeah, sound matters. So, Okay, makes, makes a difference. Makes a huge difference. Okay, let's get a little bit of your background for context, and then we can jump into the sort of main topics. Yeah, so Ben Emson, CTO at Topletics. We're a, a small tech company based in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. Yeah, we're, we're trying to sort of tackle the world's world's waste problem. So we're trying to uh, you know help enable uh, a circular economy, digitizing the circular economy. I've been involved for the last... Um, I guess four or five years now, but yeah, way back I I um, uh, was involved, you know, a number of startups and a number of big organisations, and um, I guess technology's kind of been in my DNA. Although from my sort of parents' side, uh, they're, they're they're complete technophobes. Uh, my brother can't stand technology. Um, you know, uh, my father's quite quite interested in it, but uh, um, yeah, it's it's quite. I, slightly the black sheep of the family from the sort of technology point of view. I was going to say, at some point, maybe you felt like the black sheep, but now technology is life, right? Everybody knows absolutely. this. Yeah, absolutely. It just sort of, um, I, I really believe if you are uh, have technology skills or even just the sort of the approach of thinking like a programmer, uh, right. not necessarily being able to program, being able to sort of stitch things together. Yeah. I think that's really important for this, um, you know, this where we are in, in the world at the moment. You know, you're only going to be using more APIs and more services and more things. And, and you need to be able to sort of stitch them up and understand where things go wrong. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I spent my entire really career trying to figure out how technology could make businesses more productive, but I could not program. I took some programming courses when I was in high school, but I just wasn't interested in it, maybe because I wasn't that good at it, but I knew that this mattered. And when I got to work, I said, this is what I'm going to focus on. And I did use tech a lot, but I could never program it. So I completely yeah. agree with you. No, I, I remember when I was at school, we had like a little library and I remember being fascinated by computers and there was a some uh, one of the older boys was using a, a, a Commodore pet <laughs> and I remember sort of peeling back the the books to sort of watch what he was doing you know, on the sort of green screen and then a little bit later my, my father gave me a um, he was very you know very encouraging of new things and uh, he gave me a uh, Sinclair ZX Spectrum oh wow and, and that was it. I was just completely hooked. And I remember going off and, and asking the older boys how to sort of make a cursor move across the screen and all this, you know, so getting these little snippets of code. Uh, and that I was just always fascinated by that and, and sort of bumbled along. But eventually uh, I sort of taught myself to program and, uh, and then got myself into university uh, at doing sort of programming and things. And, um, and then, and that was it. I was, I was, I was away, but it, it's one of those, 
one of these things, it, it actually, um, I think, changes your mindset. I remember when I first started learning, it was almost like I was sort of stretching this new kind of muscle that was in my brain. Once I'd sort of gone down that route, you, everything, um, you know, you look, you know, when you're trying to make decisions, you, you approach it with a very much a sort of logical approach. Certainly sort of been good for me through, through, through my life, but um, yeah, and it's a good skill to have. If you spend your entire life at work, like living inside of algorithms or living inside of like nested if then statements, it just becomes part of your regular life as well, right? So because, because I spent so much time on a trading desk, the whole world to me looked like some kind of trade. Like, how do I get enough information to make the right decision? How do I create the right decision tree so I can figure out in real time how to do this? Because that's what I did every day as well. Go ahead. I interrupted you. Yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely. And, 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 and I wouldn't also, I think like all these things, it's a balance. Yeah. I, I think there is a real place for creativity. Uh, and it's so easy just to sort of just have the logic and so on. But you need to almost see out of the corners of your eyes. And that's where the, the innovation comes in, you know, being able to understand what's going on in the environment or, or, you know, the sort of technology sector that you're in, the sector you're in, and then just being able to apply things differently and, and, and look at the world through different lenses. Technology now, there's so many things that you can apply to problems that you would never have thought, like waste, for example. If you just take a step back and look at that and have the sort of technology skills, then then I think there's lots of opportunities open to people. Do you still program now? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Really? So uh, I, I program in um, Python and, and Ruby and originally I did Java and I've done a bit of C Sharp. Oh, and I did a, I created a course uh, on Elixir as well, which was um, which which was quite fun. But oh, what, I, Alexa not, skills? Uh, Elixir. Oh, Elixir, is, sorry, um, excuse me. Elixir, yeah. Um, <laughs> although I have done Alexa programming, so I'll, I have programmed my Alexa at home, so yeah. This is what happens when somebody from the United States speaks to somebody from the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we only hear the words we know. You're, are you originally from Edinburgh? No, no. So my father is in the military, and um, we moved all over the world. So uh, I was actually born in Germany, but that was a sort of military hospital. Right. And then we lived in Canada for two years, um, which was incredible. I was at that kind of age, sort of 9, 10, 11, that kind of age. And um, my father would buy us presents that were kind of out of our age range. So he bought us a motorbike <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a buggy. And um, it was like a Honda Odyssey, it was called. And we used to hair across the prairies. We were right in this big training area, which was like the size of Hampshire. It's massive. Wow. Uh, and we used to go across. And to start with, we didn't, even, it was very feral. We, uh, we didn't even have helmets. And I remember getting pulled over by the Canadian military police for riding without helmets and stuff. And, uh, and so we had to sort of go back sort of cap in hand and, and, and do that. But uh, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful kind of upbringing and very, um, it taught you self-reliance. Um, you had to sort of figure out how to look after yourselves. You know, when it was cold, it got down to minus 46 degrees centigrade. And uh, any part of your skin um, that was exposed, you'd get frostbite in in um, two minutes and stuff. Wow. So you'd have to be very careful, but it yeah. was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> my, dad, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot, oh. not outside the, we were supposed to move to Japan with him, but in the end that just didn't happen. So I get yeah. it, yeah. There's a, there's a special kind of response you get for from kids that move around a lot. There's a resiliency because you have to learn how to adapt to everything. 
Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic skill to have because we were always moving. Because we were always moving, we had to make new friends uh, in in these new areas. Yeah, and um, at quite an early age, I learned how important uh, a sense of humour was. Um, it really breaks down barriers, especially if it's not pointed at someone. If it's Correct. if it's more pointed at yourself, then actually it breaks down barriers, and um, people sort of become you know much easier to sort of talk to, and, and you can you know help to make friends. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's always served me well. I remember doing uh, an army course. I was going to originally join the army and um, having, we'd had to do this whole sort of sort of two or three days exercise. And at the end, the lorry was just in front of us where we were going to sort of finish. We, had, we were jogging up this lorry and just as we got there, it drove off. And, um, you know, we would then have to do another 10 mile hike or something. Uh, and I just remember just being absolutely despairing um, and then just thinking, I'm just going to make a joke out of this. Uh, and I, I cracked, I can't remember what I said, but I cracked some joke and it just completely changed the mood of the situation with everybody else. Yeah. And I kind of realized then that it's a real bonding and um, powerful sort of social tool to sort of developing yourself. Right. So I actually said this this morning to the guy that I was recording with as well. I said to him, you've got a great sense of humor. And I love talking to people with a great sense of humor. And he goes, yeah, most people don't get it though. <laughs> but it was really, but again, it's disarming, right? Because once you start laughing with somebody, everything kind of melts away. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So why did you end up moving to Edinburgh then? So my wife's Scottish and oh, okay. um, we were living in London. Uh, I was working for O2 uh, at the time and uh, her brother has a, a disease and um, she wanted to be with, with them. And um, we have uh, three boys and I thought, actually, do you know what? Um, the lifestyle for, for Edinburgh seems seems um, you know m much nicer and, and so on. So um, so we moved up here. We sold a house in, in Edinburgh in London and, and moved up here. And um, I didn't have a job to start with. <laughs> um, so there, there is a little bit of a sort of risk taking kind of gene, I think, that slightly gets me into trouble, but also opens up doors. And, and so when I moved up here, I, I, I created these online courses. Right. You know, it seemed like you could make masses of money out of it. And of course, um, it, it's never quite what you seem. Uh, and so I only did two. You know, you have to sort of overcome these kind of like, uh, you know, these sort of personal barriers of, uh, uh, you know, whether you're good enough and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I kind of, I, I you know, I then sort of started pushing that further and, and looking at creating an analytics um, platform for, for courses. And I started doing that. And in the meantime, I was beginning to run out of money. So I started doing contract work. Uh, and that's where I met Mike. So Mike is the CEO of Toplytics, right. uh, and I did a little bit of contract work for him. Just, just remained. In fact, I think he found me through these these courses. We, we work in this massive kind of tech hub in Edinburgh called Codebase. Okay, and I think there were uh, obviously COVID's affected it, but there were about um, you know sort of five hundred companies I think at, at one stage in here. So it's like Station F or something in France, yeah. Yeah, and it's fantastic. Those sort of places are fantastic because. You, you meet people at the water cooler and, yeah. you, you know, you, you make friends and um, all of the team that we end up, uh, or the majority of the team we ended up employing, um, I just worked with or bumped into and they're all through Codebase and that made a massive difference. Um, you know, you had a, uh, a lot of trust. Uh, um, so we have a team of about um, 20, all the sort of developers, uh, um, you know, I, I've known well and um, they're all senior and they're all very capable. These communities are fantastic, I think. They really are. I mean, I exist in one every day. I work at True Digital Park. The serendipity for me, it's better than sitting on a trading floor where you're just going to run into people that are doing the exact same thing that you're doing. 
which is fun yeah. as well. But if you're in one of these big tech-based co-working spaces, I'm pretty comfortable just walking over to anybody and say, what are you working on? What can I learn? Oh, do you know I have a podcast? And it's like, it's just so easy to do. And you're right. You just become friends serendipitously. It's really, really nice. You said you were building these courses and it's hard, right? Because I think in some cases, whether it's online education or podcasting or even just a startup, we talked about this before, but sometimes it feels like you're operating in a vacuum. No one knows yeah. you're there. So what, yeah. what made you think about building an analytics platform? Because I think it dovetails nicely into what you're doing now, yeah? So I bought these courses and then, uh, so I bought, I created these courses. You, you want to see how you're doing uh, and you want yeah. to see how you compare to other, other, other courses. What I wanted to check was how uh, um, my course was doing over time. And so I would, um, you know, so I wrote a little sort of simple tool that would kind of scrape the values off of, of my kind of particular area uh, and, and just record it. And then I figured, actually, why, why am I just doing it for one uh, one course? Why not just do it for the whole lot? Right. Um, and so I, so, I, so I did that. So, you know, and then we started sort of gathering all this information. And, um, and I've been doing a lot of work on uh, Amazon, um, although we're not, Toplessics is currently hosted on um, Google. Um, and I um, was really interested in that time in the, the data lakes and, yeah. and how that works. And as I started gathering some of this data together, we start, I started doing some analysis on it. And I had a, a colleague and things I would um, work with on, on some of this. And that then really sort of transposed to a lot of the things that we're doing here in Toplessics as well. So, you know, trying to sort of understand how to acquire all, all this information, how to do it in a responsible and repeatable way. And then, you know, how to then sort of handle data. Data's awful. Because if you come from a sort of development point of view, uh, a d development world, you know, you can be very structured in your code. You can sort of do all these code reviews uh, and, you you know, and, it, and, it, and, it, and that's all quite nice. Data is much more slippery and much more kind of malleable. Trying to sort of create these workflows and processes I've found much harder, but we've now got some quite nice ways of doing it. But it, it was so. So initially, when I was doing these things for myself, I, 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 I slightly struggled. But again, you know, up here we had um, I had some very good um, people I was able to speak to. So with Toplytics, we won a uh, competition with Google Cloud and SAP. So that and that was this sort of uh, circular economy. Uh, 2030, I think it was. They then gave us some uh, resource to talk to, and that was that was fantastic. And when you're a small company, being able to sort of talk to you know people you know in the industry, and even though they've got a sort of bias towards their own products, is it's fantastic. You know, it really gives you a, a kind of leg up and a, a, a way to go. And also, you know, being able to just experiment, you know, and try things out is is has been really important. I, I want to understand this idea that data value. The data value increases through layers. What do you mean by this? So one of the things that we sort of noticed or I noticed sort of early on is that if you get that raw data coming in, obviously there's all sorts of problems with this. So even raw data is probably wrong because, you know, the people recording it may give you a, a bias towards what they're expecting to give you and so on. So you can never completely trust it. So when you get this this data, and obviously you, you go through a sort of cleaning process and you have this nice kind of base layer, but then you can start combining it. So you can combine it with itself and you can get stats and other bits and pieces. But but what happens when you then start combining it with other reference data? Um, and this is something that we've looked into and, and, and are doing uh, at Topolytics uh, a lot is um, taking data sets, public, publicly available data sets, 
uh, and then combining um, our customer data with it. And we start seeing all sorts of really interesting nuances and, and other things. And this is where, uh, well, although I said I hated days at the beginning, I actually really like the, the sort of magnification that you get as you sort of build up the, the, these levels. But you need to be very careful that you don't make mistakes at the bottom layer because they then ripple up. So once you sort of have that good base layer, then you can start applying algorithms to it. Then you can start you know, creating these uh, interesting models. Uh, and then those can be combined with other things. So, you know, and you need a, a platform where uh, it's open for experimentation. So um, obviously, uh, in data science world, there, there's a lot, uh, a lot of uh, uh, um, things around notebooks, these Jupyter notebooks, and, and so on. And we we use we use some of these, and we we use um, there's some, some variants of that. And that's really nice because it helps fix some of the problems with documenti documenting, you know, the data and the processes that you're doing to it. But also, you can put testing in it, uh, and you can actually then export some of this stuff as uh, as libraries and things. So we use, you know, we're beginning to use this a lot, um, and we sort of go through a bit of a kind of a, a workflow process to sort of sort of figure out out some of these things. So. Why don't we tell people what Topolytics Topolytics is now, so they can get a better sense of why you have all this data, and maybe just touch on where the data comes from, and then how you've built and continue to build the waste map. Yeah, so um, so Topolytics is an organization that we are we are building a data platform uh, to make the world's waste um, visible, verifiable, and valuable. The whole premise really is that you know if you are going to create a, a circular economy, um, there are a number of building blocks that you need to get in place. And we think one of those building blocks is, is, is data platforms, and waste is one of those 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 data platforms, or, or one of those areas that building a data platform would be useful. Now, if you have these data platforms, as the as the sort of this sort of industry uh, matures, not only will you be able to do interesting data things in your own area like waste. But you can start having algorithms that can perhaps branch across these into, you know, maybe there's another platform around energy. Uh, and you can start combining these and you can then create a, a circular economy. And I think nowadays we, we, we have to, as humans, we have to start thinking more about uh, the environment. We have to think, um, you know, how do we, we actually encode within our businesses and, and environmental factors. And, and I don't mean it in a kind of greenwashing kind of, we need to uh, have this balance, you know, as tribes have evolved, they've always sort of reused and lived in harmony with nature. And I think we need to do that a little bit more now nowadays. Can we go through a, through a few of these stages though? And maybe again, just to simplify stuff, I like to create sort of a one unit economy. So maybe if there's like one waste producer, one, because you're tracking the waste, right? If it's visible, what you're trying to do, I guess, is follow the path of the waste to where it's going next, maybe even yeah. fr from, from where it comes. So let's say there's just one place, we can call it a factory, we can call it whatever you want, where waste is getting produced. It leaves there. If there was one place in the world where it went, what type of place would that be? And then what type of data are you getting just to put it in terms that people can understand. So how does it become visible? What is the verifiable part? And if it's valuable, that must mean that someone's making money from it, right? Or that it has value, that someone's either willing to pay for it or turn it into something else. Can you just run through those steps in that one sort of, you know, one strain economy? And then how data plays a, a role there? 
so waste is currently companies, organizations um, produce waste. Well, everyone, everyone produces waste. And we call those um, producers. They'll, they'll have their, their bins and they'll then get collected by a waste management company, a, a hauler. What will happen is they'll they'll pitch up on a schedule, usually pick up those bins, those trash trash cans, and then carry that to a receiving site. And that will be either a transport hub or it'll be a site where they actually process that waste and they'll turn it into something something else. Right. So what they'll do is they'll either split it. So if it's sort of a general bag of black bag of waste, it, they might sort of go through and pull out the plastic and the the sort of metal and, and other things. Uh, and those will then start going down separate streams. Um, and then they'll go on to uh, another site, which will then do something with that plastic. So maybe recycle that plastic, uh, ex you know, do things with the metal, um, turn, you know, recycle that metal and so on. Uh, and there'll be a whole bunch of stuff that will kind of leaks out and needs to go into, you know, needs to go to landfill or it will go to incineration. And you, you can get energy from incineration as well. So there's a whole sort of chain of things that kind of go on. These sort of the waste management companies have this sort of uh, contract where they a conveyance contract where they they will um, pick that waste up for you, and, and that's often regulated. So in the, in the UK, there's we have sort of waste transfer notes and consignment notes, which are you know for for normal um, non-hazardous and hazardous waste, and there's there's other things as well. So that's the sort of you know there's a sort of lift and there's a sort of carry and there's a sort of drop uh, of the material, and that's kind of one one kind of conveyance note. That's one kind of docket that kind of happens. And then there's another one where it gets lifted from that, that receiving site maybe, and then gets sent on. And what happens is, you know, unlike in the sort of uh, uh, commercial world where, you know, you're a, you're a big manufacturer of some product, um, you'll, you'll have a very good understanding of all the logistics um, that sort of move uh, for the materials coming in and where that product then goes on to and all that kind of stuff. You're, you'll be really kind of clear about what happens there. But as soon as it becomes waste, it gets lost in the, in, in the, in the sort of system. And that's partly, you know, due to um, how things are encoded and, and um, you know, some of the regulations and, and all sorts of different, different factors. Um, and so, so you don't have that view of where that material goes to. But that's still a material that, that still can be reused. Um, that can still be turned into something else. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. And that's sort of to get a lot getting lost in the system or it's getting shipped off into sort of other parts of the world uh, and getting turned, you know, getting dumped in the oceans or, or other right. things. And and actually, you know, within the industry, we're, we're all to blame to some degree. You know, the consumers need to be better at, at wanting things to be recycled. The producers need to, you know, make their products easier to if you then link all of these these hops together, right. you get a chain. But it's very hard to link these jobs because you'll have one organization doing doing one part of it and you'll have another organization doing something else. And you know, what actually happens, the transformation of that material. So if you're tracking a plastic bottle all the way through, what what actually happens to it? Uh, and that becomes very, very tricky. And, and the way we look at it at Topolytics is we say this is a data problem. And we think of it, the, this flow of material is like a, like a flow of energy or flow of a fluid. And if we use statistics and analysis, we can actually get an idea of how this material then flows through this, this, this chain. And then by understanding what happens at each stage, uh, to some degree, we're able then to sort of build up this really interesting and powerful uh, model uh, of this chain that we can apply to many different things. How do you get the data, though? 
So we get the data from uh, a number of different sources. So firstly, initial focus has been looking at um, working with uh, waste producers. Right. So we um, take the data that their waste management companies are producing and we normalize it and clean it uh, and present it back to them in ways that are useful. And we then have our, our algorithms and so on. We also have, um, we've been working with uh, the UK government. So um, DEFRA, uh, which is a Department of uh, Environment, uh, Food and Rural Affairs in, in the UK, put out a thing for uh, um, to sort of track the UK's waste. Uh, and we built a, a, a pilot for them. Uh, and we were one of two companies uh, and we, we've uh, uh, that's just finished and um, we'll, we'll hear how we go in the next few months, I guess. So we, we're also talking to other organizers, uh, sorry, other sort of regulators in other parts of the world as well. Um, and we're also talking to waste management companies. So we're looking at capturing data from producers, from also um, from, from waste management companies uh, and also from regulators. And all of this is adding to these different layers right. of data and this is then becoming a very useful uh, um, piece. So we'll often get like really strong connections and, and flows through certain parts of it, and we'll have weak ones elsewhere. But the way we've designed the system is that we can handle that. We, we put a confidence score into where that that flow is strong and, and where that flow is is weak. And what is the what is Topolytics trying to accomplish? Obviously, you have all this pretty incredible data and whether it's local which is important but then it turns regional so it can be regional if someone takes it from your locality and sends it to another region and it's also global because if someone then takes it from here and sends it to the ocean the pacific ocean off the coast of japan or sells it to a, a, somebody who wants it in japan is going to recycle it and turn it into cell phones or something what's the what's the end goal really once you create because it seems to me here's my here's the way i envision this it seems to me that like waste data in a way is almost like weather data at some level, right? Because it's moving and it's alive. It never is sitting in just one place. And even if it gets to one place, it gets processed, it gets split up into things, it gets sent somewhere else. It may get, like you said, it may get reused, right? So it's always moving. And there must be like, you know, these ma this massive flow of just stuff, but also of data that you're getting. What is the end game that you're trying to achieve when you have all this stuff? And is it predictive, prescriptive, in the sense that you, you're writing all these algorithms trying to figure out where it's not just going to go, but where it's going to be the most valued as well? So firstly, there is inherent value in the material. And one of the things that, you know, we, we've had to, we keep kind of coming across sort of problems and we've had to sort of innovate our way out of those. Uh, and one of those is is the sort of descriptions of materials. So in Europe, you have these things called uh, EWC codes, which are sort of European waste category codes, uh, catalog codes. So the, the problem with those is they're actually quite high level. Um, and also they in encompass sort of uh, uh, transformations and, and activities that have happened on those materials as well. Uh, and that's not very good for just describing a material. Um, and also, if you start working in other um, uh, uh, other countries, um, you know, like in, in Asia and in America and so on, they, they've got other codes. You've got EPA codes in, 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 um, in, in the US and so on. Um, so we need a way of representing those internally. And, and one of the things that 
part of sort of trying to sort of represent these internally within our system is actually what is the quality of that material as well right. now if we if we can if we can get some kind of um uh, understanding of what you know the quality of those things at the beginning we actually um start having a resource map um, we know where there are high concentrations of good quality materials in certain areas. Um, and this is beginning to move towards, um, you know, potentially powering a, a marketplace. Uh, and it's something that we haven't, you know, we're not focusing on at the moment. But we do see that there is a lot of value in the data that we're getting. Uh, and some of that may be sort of powering other types of sort of applications and, and so on. But ultimately, and to answer your question, that what we're trying to do is to help enable a circular economy, you know, try to actually, you know, companies that produce or organizations that produce waste materials, how do they get those back and, uh, and reuse those in an efficient way? How can they reduce their, their carbon footprint and, 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 and how can they help, you know, when they're designing their products, um, what materials, you know, are the best materials to use from a sort of recycling point of view? Um, you know, at any particular area in, in the UK, we can tell you what percentage of material uh, of that material goes to sort of landfill or incineration or whatever. And if you changed it for, say, cardboard or, you know, if it was a plastic bottle and change it to cardboard, you know, that would, you know, a, a greater percentage would go into recycling, for example. So, so there are things that are beginning to sort of uh, uh, we're beginning to be able to see, and that's only because we look at things at a much greater detail than just the sort of standard EWC codes. So again, if you have the whole chain, so if you know what the producer is putting into their bin, so if you have understand that bin composition, uh, and then there are things like sort of DRS schemes, so deposit return schemes and so on, where actually you can get very fine grain information about that uh, initial that initial bin, and even though then the, the waste management company will sort of encode it in these EWC codes, you can start following the flows of, of those different material streams um, through the system, and you can then start seeing where they split and, the, and where, where they go off to. Uh, and again, we have a very patchy sort of, I, I sort of often say it's like a sort of Swiss cheese, but we can start making predictions of what's happening in the holes. Um, and, you know, to start with, some of those are not that accurate, uh, but you know, as we get more data coming in, that accuracy only increases. Um, and, you know, we understand more about the sort of relationships and other things. Um, and then also, one of the other things is, is that we start having the ability to look at sort of indices of, of things as well. So we, we have an understanding of how well waste management companies are doing in, in terms of process. We understand the, the amounts of materials, the different streams of those materials. Uh, and there's all sorts of interesting, you know, th there's a lot of value that starts coming out when you start, you know, you can start looking at these things creatively. Yeah, I mean, you said marketplace, right? You said you're not there yet, but this is where things start getting really interesting, right? Because the more data you get, obviously, the more you understand where every sort of little granular component is going, like you said, right from the bin to wherever it's going to go. But also because it has value, if you can create a marketplace, then you can create real-time bidding and offering on this stuff. So I can then change the place or the location where I'm sending stuff. Like you can disincentivize people for putting things in a landfill, which is just a terrible result. And then also improve the circular economy while still making money through a monetary incentive for people to then buy and sell this stuff as if it were just a regular commodity. And at some level, 
if you have as much information on throwaway plastic, I'm just making it up because I don't have the right terminology, but on throwaway plastic, as they have on, you know, oil futures, you can create a whole market around the trading and the indices of these and just create a tight value for all that stuff, right? A real bid and offer spread that's super tight where people know where it's trading. That's actually kind of cool because it incentivizes people then, you know, again, you said no greenwashing, but, you know, in a way, who cares? As long as it's good for the environment and helps the circular economy, I kind of don't care what you call it. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, and I, and I come on to that. We're not, we're not doing a, a marketplace at the moment. We're, we're really focusing on, um, you know, pro providing as much kind of producer value to the producers and the, and the waste management companies and the regulators as we, as we possibly can. Um, because really understanding that data and really being able to sort of um, help them, you know, because all, all this data is in many different formats, and uh, and just getting it in in the right play in the right place in the right shape is very hard, and that's really where we're focusing at the moment. But there are a load of outcomes from this, so there's loads of sort of applications, and, and marketplaces is just one of them, um, where we think that there is, is an, a, a lots of value and this is things that we'll be exploring uh, over time you know um and i'm particularly interested in you know as you mentioned uh, incentives um how can you how can you sort of incentivize people sort of to do the right kind of behaviors yeah how can you incentivize to give data that um you know helps uh you know with the relationships that we're interested in and, and so on so there, there's a load of little pieces of that puzzle and, and i think at some we have looked at blockchain and things um, previously but it, it's it's not something that we're, we're involved in at the moment but I, I think there is potential for things around that not necessarily in the tracking um but in the sort of incentivizing good behavior yeah so you, you could use a smart contract like an ethereum-based smart contract right that says if this gets triggered then you get this yeah absolutely yeah yeah, kind of interesting. So do you want to give one more example and then I'll let you go of the kinds of things you're thinking about doing, staying away from the marketplace, which we already talked about? So, so part of what we're really trying to understand at the moment. So we, we have this uh, uh, algorithm that we've been developing, this waste chain algorithm. Uh, and a lot of that sort of is tied to sort of the relationships between organizations, but also the sort of triggers of different data sets. So, you know, I mentioned uh, the sort of reference data, um, you know, we, we have things like all sort of permits and licensing sites in the UK, but actually when you start combining those with other things like weather, that ha has some really interesting outcomes. So for example, when a lorry picks up um, a load of uh, cardboard uh, in the UK, you, you can't leave that uh, lorry uh, in a warehouse overnight because there, there's a fire risk. So you have to leave it outside. Now, if it ra rains, then that cardboard gets wet and the moisture content goes up and then the value of that material then changes. Now, if we're able then to start looking at all of these, these uh, uh, sites and, uh, and so on, we can get an idea about how efficiently they are at processing some of this, this data. Now, one of, the, one of the sort of side effects of this is, well, if you can you know, make predictions down this chain, um, you don't have to do that right now. You can do that at some point in the future. So you have a sort of scenario planning side effect. Um, and so one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, if you're an organization, what is the sort of the impact um, of adding a new waste processing site? Or what is the impact of, you know, changing all your materials uh, and, and what, how that goes down? 
But interestingly, you can kind of turn it the other way around and say, well, you know, I'm I'm at the far end. You know, I'm at sort of one of these receiving sites, uh, and someone has sort of put in a, you know, I've got a big bundle of plastic or something, and someone has put some, you know, material that shouldn't be in there, like a like a nappy or a kind of used thing. Uh, I want to know where where that's come from, and we can start looking at how we then go back up that chain. There's some really interesting um, bits that we're playing around with that. So scenario planning is is probably one of them. That sounds super cool. Okay, I'm gonna let you go. I can feel the enthusiasm actually. I can feel the enthusiasm here. We're gonna have to get you back on again to keep talking about this because there's a lot more to cover. I really wanna thank you, Ben Emson, the director and the chief technical officer of Topolytics. This was super great. Thank you very much, I very much enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, and I've been listening to your podcast, so um, keep up the good work. Thank you.